This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenevec. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern Time on Bloomberg Radio. Or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News. Well, it's one of the most read stories on the Bloomberg Terminal today, and it's also the cover of the new issue of Bloomberg Business Week magazine. It's available on newsstands and at Bloomberg.com slash Business Week. It's all about Kathy Wood, who has become a star both in and outside of the world of ETS. They call her Money Tree in South Korea and the Godmother in Hong Kong. Joining us now is Joel Weber, editor at Bloomberg Business Week, and Ben Steverman, personal finance editor at Bloomberg News. Joel, uh, people may know about Kathy Wood over the last year because she has become this celebrity inside and outside of, of finance, but she got started at ARC relatively late in her career, and she's been at this for years. Yeah, and what we really tried to do, I think we talk about Kathy Wood almost every day in general at, at Bloomberg News because it's become just one of the most remarkable stories of the past year. Um, but we, what we tried to do and what Ben and um, Claire Ballantyne and Annie Massa did with this cover story was really tried to tell a bigger story about who Kathy Wood is, where she came, came from, how she's upended investing, and, and maybe pull, you know, pull some things that, uh, out that nobody had ever really known about her. And, and they did that. And, you know, it's really rooted in um, her, I think, having a really deep understanding of the financial industry um, before she started ARC. Um, she she had an active the, the idea of doing an actively managed ETF at um, uh, Alliance Bernstein, which basically said we don't want you to do that, and she went out and did it anyway, and that's made her basically one of the biggest names in in finance at the moment. Um, and and Ben, as you just started to you know work in on this story, what what stuck out to you? What makes Kathy different and special? So I think that. You know, in the last year, the pandemic has created um, a lot of frenzies. Like, we've seen a lot of frenzies in the stock market, and we've seen a lot of people promoting themselves and promoting their SPACs. And uh, we've seen a lot of that phenomenon uh, of like, almost celebrity culture coming into uh, finance and investing. And so I, I approached Kathy Wood as maybe part of that. But now, you know, the more I looked at her, the more I realized that she's actually been this same person for, for, for decades, like she is obsessed with innovation and the future. And, and what she was saying, you know, five years before the pandemic is the same thing she's saying now, uh, more or less, maybe the timeline has accelerated a bit in terms of the, 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 the changes she sees in the economy and the stock market. But um, I, I really think that um, investing in these, this, these future technologies is more, it's almost more about her, her like philosophy of life than it is about making money. I mean, of course, she's in it to make money, but I think she has broader goals in mind. Well, Ben, uh, to that point, and among the many, many new things that I learned about Kathy Wood in this cover story by you and Claire and Annie, uh, has, has been that she talked about, that she had this really prescient comment back in, in February of 2019 when she told a podcast, it's the, the best thing that can happen for us, and this is going to sound odd, is a crisis. It's usually when innovation takes root and, and gains traction. So, so how did that play out during the pandemic? How did this five-year time horizon that she talks about so much uh, truncate, accelerate? Yeah, I mean, she 
uh, it's incredible if you look at the numbers on her flagship ETF. I mean, we're talking about 150% return in 2020. She was right on. She 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 captured the the mood of the market in that moment, and then it continued to go up uh, all the way into February. Now, since then, um, she's lost about a third of the value in in her fund because you know as the economy's reopened, the market's been shifting towards a little bit more boring stocks. Um, the broader the the rally is broadened out, and she says that's actually good for her because it means that it means that this is a, actually a sustainable bull market. And I, she keeps telling her investors, who've mostly stuck with her, that um, that she has a five-year time horizon and she still expects her portfolio to triple over those five years. Plenty of people don't believe that, I've I got to say. Um, and, and so we try to reflect the debate in the story about, you know, is, is she right? Is she wrong? Um, you know, is this a real grounded opinion or, or is she just um, really hoping against hope? But um, but. She's she seems pretty unruffled by what's happened recently. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio. Well, just a few months ago that we learned about the market rattling meltdown of Bill Wong's Archegos Capital Management. It was a debacle that left big banks in Europe, Asia and the U.S. nursing more than $10 billion in losses. Now, our own Sridhar Natarajan reports that the Justice Department is said to open a probe into the blow-up. He joins us now from the Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Sridhar is a finance reporter right here at Bloomberg News. Uh, congratulations on the scoop, Sridhar. Uh, take us through what exactly the Justice Department is looking for. It's really preliminary at this stage, Tim, but we understand that federal prosecutors in Manhattan have sent requests for information to at least some of the banks that dealt with uh, the firm Archegos Capital Management that was Bill Huang's family office. And we believe they're trying to better piece together what really happened because at the end of the day, you had a situation that left global banks with more than $10 billion in losses. Banks across Europe, Asia, and the US suffered losses that, you know, the kind of losses we generally don't see, especially tied to one client. And on top of that, one man alone lost nearly $20 billion in wealth. So like you said, it certainly was a market rattling event. And now it looks like the DOJ is certainly sniffing around to see if there was something more uh, malicious. Shridhar, you do point out in your piece that Archegos has not been accused uh, by authorities or its banks of breaking any laws in their dealings. It, it has still drawn public criticism from regulators. Uh, what is it specifically that the regulators are concerned about? Is it is it the fact that they were able to build these positions in companies without being transparent about it in ways that public companies, we, we usually know who the owners are? Any times... Anytime important institutions like these large global banks can feel so completely blindsided, that is a matter of concern for regulators. You have a situation here where really in two parts, you have this firm that from nowhere amassed so much wealth so quickly, which is an incredible story in itself, from uh, next to obscurity to have more than $20 billion in net assets, over $100 billion exposure in markets. That's an incredibly fast rise in less than seven years that this family office was around. That is the first most incredible thing here. But then what happened right after that, in a matter of days, that entire wealth vanished. Banks had to move to liquidate the position because some of his most concentrated bets, Bill Huang's bets, moved against him and banks were trying to save their skin. Some of them managed to do just fine and escape the burning building. 
others did not. And that's why you had such big losses. And regulators are really trying to figure out, A, how could this possibly happen? B, we, we do know that part of the problem here was he had built concentrated positions across a number of stocks without all his prime brokers really having good visibility into it. And that kind of made sense because if you have a relationship with Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley, Goldman Sachs knows what it is holding for its client. It really cannot call up Morgan Stanley and say, hey, can you also tell us every single position that he has? So the concentration was certainly a surprise. There was the use of swaps and derivatives here, which uh, kept him anonymous. So it was a whale just under the surface and really came to light when everything blew up. So let's say there are no regulatory changes, nothing happens, and the Justice Department opens a probe and, and potentially nothing comes of it. How do the banks change the way that they deal with risk as a result of this? We actually have already seen some elements of change across banks. We don't know how long that behavioral change will last. Is it because this is so close to the event that everyone's saying we need to have heightened levels of awareness. Uh, we, we need to demand more margin. We need to demand more collateral. We just need to be more cautious than we have been. The problem with all these things, and if you look at the root cause of the problem here, leverage or borrowed money, that has been the same case in any crisis you go back to, whether it was the implosion of LTCM now going over 20 years ago, even during the global financial crisis in 2008, leverage really was the root cause out there as well. All these banks might want to right. act and behave like they've learned their lesson, right. but without any real regulatory change, they may all slip into bad behavior because everyone's out there trying to make a little more money. Srinar Natarajan, finance reporter at Bloomberg News, joining us from the Interactive Broker Studios. Thank you so much. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio. Well, yesterday it was all about Amazon paying $8.45 billion to buy MGM Studios, the studio behind Bond and other franchises. Today, it's about antitrust. Amazon antitrust risk deepening as more states' AGs weigh action. Join us now is Spencer Soper, technology and e-commerce reporter for Bloomberg News. He joins us on the phone from Seattle. Spencer, take us through what the attorneys general are getting at when it comes to antitrust with, with Amazon, because antitrust and Amazon, it doesn't necessarily go with the traditional definition of consumer harm, right? Well, it, it can. And that's where um, we're just seeing more attorneys generals getting involved mm. and poking at Amazon and potentially working collaboratively to learn more about it. Um, and in terms of consumer harm, we had um, the Washington, D.C. attorney general actually filed a lawsuit as making the allegation that it is Amazon's practices are driving prices up for consumers. And that's a very traditional antitrust argument. So, um, you, and, and you're correct. There's been a lot of debate about how to go after Amazon on antitrust grounds and just this notion of like, do, the, do antitrust laws need to be updated for the digital age and these various platforms like Google and Facebook and Amazon. But some of these complaints are pretty traditional antitrust complaints about consumer harm and higher prices. So with these attorneys general, I mean, are they looking at specific elements of, of Amazon's business? Do we know what parts of Amazon's business they're looking at? Is there a part of Amazon business, Amazon's business that would fit that traditional definition of antitrust more than other parts? I mean, it, the company has its hands in so much. 
Yeah, so uh, a lot of it is pointed at the marketplace, Amazon's marketplace. And this is where Amazon basically plays a digital matchmaker between, you know, shoppers around the world and merchants around the world. They have billions of merchants on their platform. Um, and so what the, the problems there is Amazon can, it doesn't explicitly tell merchants what to do, but it can entice them to do certain things in exchange for greater visibility on the website. Because if you're invisible on Amazon, you're not going to get the, the sale. You have to be prominent in search results on the site. And that's where if, uh, if Amazon discovers that you have a lower price on another site like Walmart or something, they can bury you in search results on Amazon. Mm. And, th- and that's where it, Amazon is so powerful, some merchants will simply go back to Walmart and raise the price uh, you know, rather than lower it on Amazon to save those Amazon sales. And that would be an example of, of consumer harm where Amazon's weight in online shopping is actually forcing prices up on other sites. So shares, as you point out in your piece, fell nine-tenths of 1% in pre-market trading. They were little changed as of this morning. Shares down now by just about eight-tenths of, of 1%. I'm wondering, I'm wondering about the regulatory risk that Amazon faces when it comes to shareholders. What could be the ultimate outcome of something like this? Because, yes, you know, investors are certainly sending the stock lower today, but not, by, not significantly. Yeah, the investors have pretty much written off the antitrust risk for Amazon um, and, and I don't know if that's going to heat up or not with the new administration and new people being appointed to the FTC. But Amazon's really been able to kind of snowplow through most regulatory uh, challenges and kind of adapt and, and evolve. If we think way back when, you know, they used to uh, not collect sales tax on transactions, and that was a big deal. They were able to successfully navigate that and mature their business around collecting sales tax without a huge blow to its momentum. So I think investors just figure that Amazon will find a way around this. There are some extreme calls, like Senator Elizabeth Warren has called for like breaking it up. So yeah. You can't own a marketplace and simultaneously sell your own products. Those would be the more extreme solutions that have been called for out there. But I guess investors just see those as, as, as long shots, and it's more likely going to be you know maybe paying some fines or finessing some of its some of its. Uh, business practices would be the ultimate solution that they could that they could uh, weather. So so we're not to the point where observers, analysts, investors are are thinking about a potential breaking up of Amazon, of Amazon potentially divesting from Amazon Web Services or spinning it out. Yeah, I mean, that's always a question. That's always been a question of, you know, whether they'd spin off AWS, Amazon Web Services. Um, There's antitrust concerns around that part of the business as well. And, and like you say, it's like you, you look at Amazon. This would be the non-traditional way, mm. antitrust way of looking yeah. at Amazon, where it's just crawling in so many different directions. You know, could, does it have to be reined in in some other way besides just looking at consumer harm? But the, the AWS thing, investors have just been wondering about that as well. And as long as the other parts of Amazon's businesses are growing quickly and are profitable um, and AWS isn't bankrolling some languishing part of the business, the, at least the investor side, the pressure isn't there to spin it off. So I opened our conversation, Spencer, by referring to the news yesterday that the, the company w- was going official with buying MGM Studios for $8.45 billion. Do, do antitrust concerns, and look, this was the second biggest acquisition that Amazon has ever made after Whole Foods. But very briefly, does, it, does, does this type of scrutiny change the way that Amazon thinks about potential further acquisitions? We have about 20 seconds. Well, we have heard that the antitrust concerns have made Amazon wary about acquisitions but this is one where that market is so fragmented and there's so much competition i don't see that uh being a being a big deal or adding 
adding to any concerns because it is in this kind of distinct business line. Spencer Soper, technology and e-commerce reporter at Bloomberg News, joining us on the phone from Seattle. Spencer, thank you so much for taking the time. Spencer's story can be found on the Bloomberg terminal. It's called Amazon Antitrust Risk Deepens as more state AGs weigh action. Attorneys General from Massachusetts and Pennsylvania have joined a list of officials looking at Amazon for potential antitrust violations, which include California, New York, Washington State, and the FTC. That's according to people familiar with the matter. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. Yeah, how about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I wanna drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It certainly is. We are just under, just a little over 10 minutes from the close of trading on this second to last trading day of the month. Yana Barton is co-director of Growth Equities at Eaton Vance and joins us now on the phone from Boston. Yana, it's great to have you back on the show. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me back. Well, we're glad to have you. Um, how do you describe where we are in today's market for because by so many different measures stocks are expensive uh, i would agree with that i would also say that for investors there are multiple ways to win uh, particularly if one is focused on long-term opportunities um, you've talked about a couple of themes um, reopening trade beneficiaries i think that continues to be a place that we find uh, intriguing um, obviously i don't have to give you the statistics but uh, in the U.S., nearly 50% of our own population has gotten at least one shot. So the global economic recovery is in full swing. Um, and while the cyclical areas of the market have benefited, I think one area of the market that has been left for dead is the consumer. Again, particularly in the U.S., where a majority of our economic activity is consumption-driven, uh, we've got something like over $2 trillion of excess savings that um, consumers are spending on. Um, and uh, let me tell you, they're ready to spend. So that's why we like specialty retail. We like um, some areas within the food distributors um, uh, area of the market, again, beneficiaries from that restaurant parks and entertainment recovery. So I, I wonder, though, the you know, you, you, you said you don't have to tell me when you when you rattled off those statistics about vaccines, and it leads me to, to ask, to what extent are these trades already priced into the market right now if people are betting on that reopening? Where are you finding the value, a, in other words? That's a fair question. I think you're absolutely right where, you know, listen, we're sitting here with nearly 12% return on the S&P 500, and the average stock is actually up even more so. And the market as a whole, to your point, is trading in excess of 20 times of next year's earnings. That being said, the consumer side of the equation, again, I mentioned to you the consumer staples has been the second worst area of the market and underperformed the market and consumer discretionary is not that far behind. So I guess the point is one has to look on an industry and stock specific basis in those laggards. Um, and um, fortunately for investors, there are plenty of uh, names that haven't yet benefited from this one of the themes, which is reopening trade. Another theme, as you know, is higher inflation that we shall see if it's transitory or not. Yeah. Um, and the last theme is just being garpy. 
That's that's the question, transitory or not. Well, let's start with the um, the reopening trade. Uh, among the top holdings in, uh, in in your fund include Amazon, Microsoft, Visa, United, uh, United Health Group, Alphabet, uh, PayPal, among others. Um, how do you see this playing out in terms of the reopening? Um, again, I think there are multiple ways to kind of think through the reopening. I think I would, again... Um, ask investors to go into areas of the market they wouldn't necessarily go to. So industrials is one area mm. of the market that we continue to be intrigued by. And actually within commercial services and waste area, if reopening has taken place, there's more trash and there's more waste. And guess what? Those companies have a really neat business model where there is a constant inflationary reset that their contracts are map to. So it's a double win. Um, you know, you've got obviously the macroeconomic recovery with a nice inflationary hedge and it's a consolidating industry with M&A momentum behind it. So that's one area that one might not find as sexy as the other ones that we've talked about. And other areas within healthcare. Um, I know I've talked about this area of the market, but I, I really think it's one of those hybrids, right? Um, it is still inexpensive. We talked about high valuations, healthcare is trading, something like 20% discount when you look at next 12 months earnings uh, with double-digit earnings growth expectations uh, for in the next 12 months. And when you look one step deeper, which is within the biotech and the pharma side of the equation, those um, those companies are trading at 12 to 14 times. And they both of those areas have been laggards. And again, if you think about just the, the, the thing that we just went through, I think those companies are going to continue to benefit from CapEx and procedure recovery, as well as just genomic sequencing and how we go about therapy um, and finding drugs and drug discovery as a whole. So we're really excited about those two areas of the market. I'm, I'm curious. You mentioned inflation, so I, I, I got to ask about inflation. Um, Yellen, uh, Janet Yellen was Treasury Secretary testifying earlier today, and, and she did mention inflation, but but said it would be transitory. And, and and I'm wondering how you would define transitory and what signs would point you to saying, wait a second, this is not temporary. This is not transitory. The unfortunate answer to the question is we won't know until we know. Until um, it's too late? And <laughs> perhaps. But I think investors could be doing all the things that I'm talking about, which is being balanced in their allocation decisions to ensure that they're protected should this be more than just a transitory pool on the overall um, asset prices. Right. And I do want to jump in oh, and just, just because I have some, some remarks from Yellen here. Inflation seen recently is temporary, not endemic. Expect to see higher inflation lasting a few more months. And Yellen sees high rates of inflation through the end of the year. So not exactly saying the word transitory, but saying mm -hmm. a few more months. Yes. Um, and to your point about what are the stats that we're looking at, obviously we're looking at five-year and 10-year break-even inflationary um, uh, levels that are significantly above the 10-year uh, rates. We're looking and listening to what the companies are telling us, and the companies are telling us that input costs are rising, um, and they continue to rise because of all the logistical issues and because of all the perhaps transitory things that we're living through, right, where the demand has been and continues to be so hot, there's just not enough supply or there are shortages in certain areas of the market. So. I think you will, you know, we shall see. But in the meantime, I think you want to be focused on companies that have pricing power mm. or at least 
business models, they can be agile and flexible um, as their input costs continue to be elevated. Yana, just in the last minute that we, we have with you, how would you describe the state of the economy? We did get some solid economic data this morning with weekly jobless claims falling to a fresh pandemic low at 406,000. How would you describe the economy? The economy is very strong. I mean, all the macro and microeconomic data continues to be just astounding. I mean, we look at fundamentals, right? I mean, earnings are the best leading indicator to the economic progress. We always talk about that. And we just went through a Q1 earnings season. I know we're just uh, a couple of percentage points away that has set all records. Not only that, Tim, I look at Q2, and there's an acceleration of growth rate, both on earnings and revenue lines. So the profits are off the charts. And by the way, companies, S&P 500 companies, are sitting on something like $2 trillion of cash. (laughs) So it's it's mind-boggling. I mean, these are incredible numbers. It is a lot of money that's out there. Yana Barton, it is always great when you join us. Thank you so much for taking the time. Yana is co-director of Growth Equities at Eaton Vance, joins us on the phone from Boston. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. And you can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News.